Hello, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Yale Admissions Office. I'm Hannah, and I'm a Yale Admissions Officer. And I'm Mark. I'm also a Yale Admissions Officer. Today, we are going to talk about something that you may have seen in the news recently, a ruling in U.S. Supreme Court cases about admissions that came out this summer. Yeah, technically, these were two cases, and they got combined. They are called Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, versus Harvard, and SFFA versus the University of North Carolina. These cases are about whether universities can consider an applicant's race or ethnicity as part of the admissions process, and whether universities can practice something called affirmative action, which means giving special considerations to students from certain racial or ethnic backgrounds. And let's go ahead and say very clearly for the record, we are not lawyers and we're not going to be giving you any legal advice today. The background in all this is pretty complicated. I will say it's also really fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. We aren't going to be able to give a full summary of all the constitutional questions involved or the many, many court cases that preceded this one. But um, if you want a good summary with actually some Yale-specific insights, including some from our former Dean of Admissions, Jeff Brenzel, I'm going to recommend a podcast that's hosted by Yale's very own constitutional law expert, Akil Amar. Uh, that podcast is called America's Constitution. <laughs> Get it? A nice little punny thing going on there. Yep. Yep. America's <laughs> Constitution. Check it out. They did two episodes and our friend and former boss, Jeff Brenzel, is a featured guest. Yeah, so today we are not going to get into the debates about the merits of affirmative action, either in the abstract or how it's been practiced at Yale or at other schools. But we think it's worth saying clearly that this is an issue about which lots of smart people have some strong disagreements. Yeah, the Supreme Court's ruling itself shows a lot of differing opinions, even among the nine justices, even though they mostly all agreed that the goal of affirmative action, which is having a diverse student body because diversity has educational benefits for students, is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and cards on the table. Yale filed something called an amicus brief in this case, which was uh, arguing in favor of affirmative action. Right. And since the ruling, Yale's president, the deans of Yale College and our other graduate professional schools and our very own dean of admissions, they've written that they were personally disappointed by the ruling. But there are many varying opinions among students, faculty and staff. And, you know, I, for one, think that that's a good and a healthy thing. This is a complicated issue that people approach from different perspective and with different ideas of what's right. And even without digging into questions about the meanings of specific words in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution when it was ratified in the 1860s, people are going to have really different opinions about this. Yeah. So we're not going to get into a constitutional law lecture here. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not going to make this a primetime cable news political roundtable debate or anything like that. But we are going to talk about what the ruling means for the work we do as admissions officers selecting students. And we'll talk about what the ruling means for our listeners who might be prospective applicants or educators. Right. And we're also going to talk about Yale's strategy for responding to the ruling to ensure that Yale still has a student body that is diverse along all dimensions. So, Hannah, before we dive into that, let's make a few things very clear for our listeners. Okay. Uh, Yes. The first thing is that the ruling has practical implications for how admissions offices do their work. But it does not make anything that a student or an educator might write in an application illegal. If you don't work for an admissions office, you don't need to change anything. Beyond that, our advice here is that the ruling simply should not change how you approach the process of selecting schools, putting together your application, advising others, etc. Basically, however you were thinking about this on the day before the ruling came out, we think that's how you should be thinking about it now. Yep. Um, another thing we, we just want to say explicitly, Yale is required to comply with the court's interpretation of the law, and we will. 
full stop. No trickery here or anything going on behind closed doors. We are law-abiding citizens, and we mm-hmm. respect the legal process that got us to this place. Yes. Okay. And thing number four, this is the last one. Our position is that the court's interpretation of the law has changed, but our values haven't. Right. And one of our core values is that a student body that's diverse along all dimensions is better for student learning. So after the ruling, we're pursuing new ways of ensuring that Yale student body can become more diverse, not less. Right. Okay. So let's get into some details and start with the ruling itself. Um, the SFFA cases were the latest in about 50 years worth of court battles around the consideration of race and admissions. Yes. And so this has been in the court a lot. And previously, the court had placed some limits on both how and why a university can consider a student's race. In one earlier case, a court said that you can't set quotas in your class for students of a particular race or ethnicity. In other words, you can't say, okay, 10% of the seats in their class are for one group. Mm -hmm. Then in another case, the court said, well, you can't treat race or ethnicity in a mechanical way and say just award a certain number of points for being a member of a particular minority group even if your admissions process involves a formula and listeners know that ours doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the court also said, a university can't consider a student's race and give special consideration to certain students for the purposes of remedying historical wrongs or, quote, redressing grievances, end quote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so universities haven't been able to do any of that for a long time now. Mm -hmm. The court also said several times through several cases that universities could consider a student's race or ethnicity as one part of the larger holistic review and could do so because of the compelling interest of having a diverse student body. And I hope that that sounds familiar to you listeners, even if you don't know anything about the Supreme Court. That's exactly how Yale runs its selection process. We run a holistic review process and we try to build a diverse student body. Right. So in this latest case, a few things changed. In the opinion, there's actually some disagreement among the justices as to whether they are er overturning these previous cases or not. But practically speaking, it doesn't really matter. Things have changed for us. Things have changed. And in the majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that the two universities that were sued, in this case, Harvard and the University of North Carolina, they had admissions processes that were unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Uh, We won't get into the specifics of the reasoning the justices the majority gave for why these were unconstitutional. But the most significant issue revolves around this idea of an applicant's race as a factor in and of itself. So this phrase, race Qua race (laughs) appears a few times in the ruling. Qua is Latin, and it just means as or specifically kind of in the capacity of. If you become a philosophy major like me, you can start tossing in a few quas to your everyday speech. Uh, From experience, I will tell you. Uh, It's going to make you sound really smart. It will also make you totally insufferable to your friends and family. But if you major in philosophy, you get a license to start using qua in your everyday speech. (laughs) Totally. Even though Harvard and UNC argued that they weren't considering an applicant's race in a vacuum, they weren't just considering race qua race. Very nice. Um, Thank you. The justices in the majority weren't convinced that admissions officers weren't using the race in a negative way or employing stereotypes when considering the fact of a student's race. Yeah, there were also these questions about how long a university could consider race in its process and how to meaningfully measure objectives for racial diversity. So because of all this, a majority of the justices said that Harvard's admissions practices and the University of North Carolina were unconstitutional. Okay. 
That's a lot already, and that's just our super quick summary. The ruling itself is 237 pages. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Not recommended as a beach read, um, even if uh, even if you want to practice law someday. But thankfully, Yale has lawyers, and it's their job to read and reread all these rulings and help university employees like us figure out how to comply with the law. Yeah, so someone who has spent a lot of time with the lawyers over the past several months is our very own Dean of Undergraduate Admissions and Financial Aid, Jeremiah Quindlin, who joins us now. Hi, Jeremiah. Hi, Mark. Hi, Hannah. Hello. Great to be here. Big fan of the pod. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. In a world where lots of people are writing about the college admissions process, and it has only amplified and increased this summer, it is great to uh, come on here and uh, join in the effort to demystify this process. Well, we're hoping that you can help our listeners learn a little bit about what all this means for our selection process and just more generally what our office is doing, because it's a lot. Yeah, so it's worth mentioning that the ruling was specifically about Harvard and UNC's admissions practices, right? But Yale's practices weren't exactly the same. But listen, when the Supreme Court rules on a case like this, the point isn't to just say, hey, Harvard and UNC, you've got to change. The point is to say, hey, all American universities, this is how courts are going to interpret the law from now on. So get in line or you're violating the law. So based on lots of internal analysis, planning and discussion, Here's what we're doing differently starting right away. Thing number one, admissions officers won't have access to applicants' self-identified race and or ethnicity. Right. And this means that uh, on the common application, QuestBridge application or coalition application, if you do check a box to share your racial or ethnic identification when you apply, we aren't going to see it during any part of the selection process. The admissions readers, the chairs of the admissions committee or members of the admissions committee. Right. And we're also not going to have access to aggregate data on the racial or ethnic composition of the pool of applicants or admitted students. I mean, this is a pretty big deal. This is a very person-driven process, as Mark and Hannah have explained um, through many podcasts, but it does revolve around data. This means we're not going to have access to aggregate data about the student's self-identified racial identity in our applicant pool or admitted student group until the selection process has completed. And a student's racial or ethnic identification in and of itself, um, race qua race, if you want to sound fancy like Mark, Mm -hmm. uh, will not be a positive or negative factor in the selection process. Yeah. So on the one hand, some of this probably seems just kind of purely technical. We literally turned off some data fields and (laughs) we won't run some reports when we're selecting students. On the other hand, you can probably see how these issues get really heated in the legal and political debates about affirmative action. And I'd put it this way, you know, for some people, it's just obvious that institutions should be, or at least aspire to be, race blind. And they'll say, hey, we all want to live in a world where race doesn't matter, right? And for some other people, it's obvious that race is such an essential part of our lived experience, and especially for members of minoritized groups, that even trying to ignore it or paper over it is a way of denying a central part of a people's identity or simply just reality. Yeah, if you want to dig into some of those debates, check out those 247 pages of the ruling (laughs) and about a million articles and podcasts that have been produced about this. So many articles (laughs) and podcasts. Yes. So right now you're probably wondering, how was Yale using information about applicants' self-identified race and ethnicity in our selection process before all of this? And, And the short answer is we were doing exactly what previous Supreme Court cases had directed us to do. Mm -hmm. Race 
was always part of a holistic review, never considered in a vacuum and never given any sort of mechanical weight. And to the extent that race was considered, it was in the service of enrolling a diverse student body because of the educational benefits that flow from having students of different backgrounds. We considered every applicant as a complex and dynamic individual and not merely a collection of accomplishments, uh, nor a simple stereotype of any background or identity. In fact, I would say one of the things that the three of us and our colleagues love about the work that we do, even though it is very hard at times, is because of the complicated, interesting, and dynamic individuals that we mm -hmm. continue throughout the admissions process. Definitely. Uh, absolutely. And you know, some, you might be skeptical when we say that, and that's okay. Our goal today is not to defend our past practice because, hey, there's a new interpretation of the law. So let's get to what we're going to do. We are going to keep considering applicants as whole human beings with complex identities, interests, backgrounds, talents, aspirations, and elements of their character. For some applicants, we expect that they will choose to discuss something related to their race in some part of their application. If a student or an educator mentions a student's race or ethnicity in the file, that is totally fine. Yeah, sirens aren't going to start blaring. We're not going to have to go avert our eyes or run to a lawyer if we see something in an application that indicates how a student identifies. In fact, what we can do is if an applicant does choose to discuss something related to their race in some part of their application, we can connect that just like we do with other parts of a student's background to successes they've had with a student organization, awards that they've won, accomplishments that have been connected to their background, challenges that they've overcome. Mm. If students or counselors write about how students have impacted the school community, because of a certain aspect of their background, we are going to be able to consider that as part of the whole person review process, as Justice Roberts outlined in his opinion. Again, students don't have to share these aspects of their identity with us. We are still going to be able to closely consider so many different elements of a student's background besides race. But if, you know, your self-identified race is an important aspect of your background, your identity, what you've accomplished in high school, challenges that you've overcome in your life up to this point, you should certainly write about it and we can closely consider it in the admissions committee room, just like other aspects of a student's identity. Right, but to comply with the new interpretation of the law, the fact of a student's race or ethnicity is not something that will hold any special weight on its own. Right, and just to dig into this a bit more, it of course may be the case that a student's reflection on an experience involving their race is really meaningful to them and their reflection on that experience reveals something very important about them. And of course it may not be, right. right? And this is exactly why we are advising folks not to tie themselves in knots when it comes to deciding whether or not to write about race. Our advice here is don't let this decision do anything to change your approach to the college application process. Yeah, I think an important line here is that the onus is on us as admissions professionals mm -hmm. to understand the law, make changes to our process as we've already described. You as applicants should continue to decide, as you always have, what is the best way you want to represent yourself to the admissions committee. So those are some of the changes we're making to our selection process. And I think it's a good idea here to point to one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite wise men, the great Yogi Berra, <laughs> who said, it is difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. 
Yes. <laughs> yes, we do not know what's going to happen here. And we won't even get into any kind of speculation. And I just want to emphasize that, I know we said this at the beginning of the episode, that the court's interpretation of the law has changed. But I want to make it very clear that our values at Yale and in the admissions office have not changed. Mm-hmm. A student body that is diverse across all dimensions, including race, is still something that we value and something we think leads to a better learning environment for everyone. Uh, On surveys, our students tell us how much they love the diverse student body at Yale. Our faculty tell us how much they love teaching in more diverse classrooms, and those things have not changed. Yeah, so we spent a lot of last year preparing for this ruling, Mm -hmm. um, which we expected, Mm -hmm. and uh, we prepared a series of actions that we are planning to take in response. In its earlier forms, this is called the playbook. Now we're calling it the roadmap. Mm -hmm. This is what we spent a lot of time last year working on, and here's what we're going to do. Thing number one. We've updated our application questions. You can hear us talk about them on an episode that we released back in August. Yeah, we believe these questions are going to invite students from all backgrounds to reflect on the experiences that have shaped their character and their strengths. Thing number two, beginning this fall, admissions officers are going to incorporate a new place-based data element from something called Opportunity Atlas. I'm kind of a data wonk guy, so I'm really excited about this. Um, Opportunity Atlas is an ambitious, nationwide mapping project run by some economists, and it measures economic mobility at the census tract level. The data that we get from this are going to complement a bunch of other race-neutral, place-based data points that are included in a tool that's called Landscape that we've used from the College Board now for many years. And this is great because it gives us some excellent insights about where a student has grown up and where they go to school. And I think this is important to understand. Even though we are, as we discussed earlier, losing the opportunity and ability to consider one element of the student's identity, we are going to still be able to consider so many different contextual elements of their background, their neighborhood, the high school they attend, whether if they're the first in their family to attend college, whether they're a low-income student, whether they're applying from a neighborhood that has a particularly low level of economic mobility over time. We've considered most of these things in the past, and we look forward to considering them, frankly, even more closely than we have in this new landscape. And we'll make clear, we are not using these as proxies for race, Mm -hmm. but we are welcoming the opportunity to add some new data to our process. We're also hiring two full-time admissions office staff members Mm -hmm. um, who are going to work to increase our year-round engagement with college access organizations. They're going to oversee some new student-focused outreach initiatives that will incorporate current students and alumni. And this is important because traditionally the folks in this office have essentially been dedicated full-time to the selection process between November and May because we receive over 50,000 applications and that is Mm -hmm. a more than a full-time job. These two individuals are not going to engage in that process, but actually able to kind of continue to build on our outreach and pipeline efforts in a year-round, comprehensive, strategic, and dedicated way that I think is going to make a real difference for us in these areas. Yeah, and I like to point to the fact that Yale student body has really become much more diverse over the past decade or so, and I attribute a lot of that to new strategic outreach initiatives. And so I'm excited that we're going to be investing even more in this area because I think that getting a diverse group of students to apply in the first place is really the most important and kind of most necessary step to enrolling a diverse first-year class every year. 
Yeah. Speaking of which, we host a multicultural open house on our campus every fall. It's been very popular in the past and we're going to um, expand it and also launch a program to provide travel support and overnight stays to a group of prospective students who come to visit for that event. And we're also hoping to add something maybe even as early as next fall and providing travel support for adult leaders of CBOs or Mm -hmm. community-based organizations or community access organizations to also come to the multicultural open house in a parallel program for folks and educators who are working with students over the long term in one of these organizations. Additionally, we are going to increase the reach of something called the Yale Ambassadors Program. Um, Fun fact, Jeremiah created this program (laughs) almost 20 years ago. (laughs) I ran it for several years as well. It's an amazing program that connects current students with tens of thousands of prospective students when those current students are back home on Yale breaks and they'll actually go visit high schools for us. Yeah, in the interest of making sure we're reaching students from every background and from all around the country, we're going to launch some new outreach events and programs for students from rural and small town backgrounds through the new Small Town and Rural Students College Network, or the STARS Network. Yeah, I was just on a trip a few weeks ago that was sponsored by STARS, going to some smaller uh, towns and rural areas, and it was great fun. So I'm really excited about this new national initiative. Cool. We're going to create some new outreach partnerships with other colleges, including several larger public flagship universities. Yep. We will expand the distribution of our Diversity Viewbook, which is a great publication that highlights Yale's commitment to multidimensional diversity, and it's going to reach tens of thousands of high school students annually now. We'll also develop some new admissions programming with Yale Pathways for New Haven public school students and strengthen our partnership with a program called New Haven Promise. Actually, at this year's Multicultural Open House, we're piloting an overnight stay program for prospective students for the first time in probably a decade. And we've started with some really talented and accomplished students who are working with the New Haven Promise program uh, right here in Connecticut to, again, give them a sort of deeper introduction to Yale life. Yeah, this next item is exciting for me. We are planning to produce a suite of what we're calling early educational outreach material. This is going to be designed for students who are in grades 8 through 10 and really kind of prepare them just for the steps that they will need to apply to selective colleges generally. This is Mm -hmm. not going to be about just, hey, here's why Yale's a great place and we've got this fabulous residential college system. This is really going to be about, hey, we think we maybe can get your attention because our school's name is Yale. Let's give you some advice and some resources for decisions that you can make now. They're going to put you in a good place to apply to the selective college of your choice when it's the end of your high school career. We're also going to expand opportunities for students affiliated with college access organizations to visit campus and engage with the Yale community. Yeah, our new staff members are really going to help with that. Yeah, and they'll also develop new relationships with leaders of college access organizations and school counselors who serve students from underrepresented backgrounds. And this has been on our wish list to do for years, but again, we just have not had the staffing resources dedicated to this, and I think that is going to change in the next year, and I'm very excited about that. And then along those lines, our last item here is to work to bring a high-impact college preparatory summer program that specifically targets high-achieving students from underrepresented backgrounds to Yale's campus. And we're, we're hoping we can do that in the next couple of years or so. Several of our peers have hosted these programs for mm-hmm. years. We see what a transformative effect it has for the students who participate in them, and we want to be part of that. So we are working actively with some existing organizations to see about bringing them to Yale's campus soon. These are big projects that represent big investments for Yale, investments of time, of money, of staff resources. And I will just say personally, after a year of strategic planning and then a summer of 
gathering legal advice from Yale's excellent mm-hmm. team of lawyers, mm-hmm. and now having spent the last month sort of engaging with stakeholders around campus to outline this plan, I am very excited to move to the implementation stage, to mm-hmm. the roadmap stage from the playbook stage. Mm-hmm. And we have received tremendous support from every level of university leadership, philosophical support for how important diversity is at Yale, but also support in terms of resources, in terms of staffing and budget resources from the provost, the president, the dean of Yale College. Uh, it, it's been incredible. That's been a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've given you a lot. This is enough to make your head spin. Uh, even if you aren't just thinking about the strict legal questions in the ruling, you add in the emotional weight that the topic of race carries and the fact that college admissions can be bewildering and overwhelming already. And it's a lot, folks. We get it. Yeah. Um, we really wanted this episode to kind of share how we are thinking about this and approaching this. But remember, this ruling isn't really about you as an applicant, right? Yeah, yeah that's important. I mean, there is so much information about the college admissions process out there, and dare I say, misinformation. Mm-hmm. And this ruling just sort of spurred so much coverage about the process. I wish I could tell you that I thought it accurately portrayed how we do our work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think doing this podcast is so important, because I think you know, Mark and Hannah, you two have done such a great job of demystifying the process and trying to give people an insight into what's really happening on a daily basis in this office. And I think that's a key piece to the message today. Again, the onus is on us to do the work and respond to this ruling. Everyone who's listening to this podcast, if you're a student or an educator who works with students, please continue to approach this process the same way as you have in the past. And we hope that we can assure you that Yale is more invested than ever in working to ensure that promising students from all backgrounds are considering Yale and other selective colleges. We hope that you don't think for a minute that this ruling means that colleges no longer care about diversity or don't want students from minoritized backgrounds on their campus. I really want to emphasize that point. I hope that the students, families, communities, schools don't interpret the changing legal landscape to suggest that the type of students that we're interested in at Yale has changed in any way. We are committed to running a series of initiatives to continue to share the message clearly and loudly and proudly that Yale cares about diversity and we care about the educational benefits the students get from diverse classrooms and diverse residential spaces. And we're gonna continue to invest in as many ways as possible to make sure we can bring a diverse set of students to our campus. And even if we're losing the opportunity to consider self-identified race as one particular element, there are so many other aspects of diversity that are open to us. We are going to expand the notions of diversity across geography, across background, across lived experience. And because our process is so thoughtful and so detail-oriented and so fairly person-specific and Mm person-driven, I am very optimistic that even though the student body will change, we are still going to be able to bring an incredibly diverse cohort of students to this campus. Yeah, well said. Jeremiah, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. A real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, come back again soon. I hope to be invited back. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks to former admissions officer Andrew Brick Johnson, who composes our music. You should check him out at andrewbrickjohnson.com. If you have comments or an idea for an episode, drop us a line at yaleadmissionspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, remember that the views expressed in this podcast are ours and don't necessarily represent those of Yale University. Thanks for listening.